What does it mean to be a man after God's own heart? A woman after God's own heart? What does that person look like? How can I be that kind of person? Do they sin less? Do they make no mistakes? Do they have their life completely together and everything figured out? Are they liked by everyone? Do they always find success in everything they do? I would think this kind of person would be far closer to perfection than I am or could ever be. But that's not the picture the Bible paints with David's story. David was an extraordinary man, but was, as Chuck Swindoll describes him, also an ordinary man, gripped by destructive passion, rocked by family chaos and personal tragedy. I'm Joseph Williams, an intern here at West Valley Christian Church, where we exist to love God and love people. Join us as we draw courage, strength, and hope as we dig below the surface into the life of a person that the Bible describes as a man after God's own heart. Good to see that you guys are all in church this morning. No big World Cup fans in first service today. I almost didn't make it. So last week, Pastor Rob started our series on David. Um, and so this week, we're going to continue that series in David. And, and actually, we're going to be looking at uh, probably one of the most famous stories in the Bible and so I appreciate Pastor Rob deciding to be gone this weekend as opposed to a different weekend because we're going to be looking at the story of David and Goliath. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you need a Bible, our ushers will grab some, be coming down, just raise your hand, and they'll give you a Bible. If you're visiting with us and you don't have a Bible, feel free to take this one home with you that they hand you. <clears throat> So in 1 Samuel chapter 17, let me kind of remind you guys of what Pastor Rob kind of talked about. So last week, Pastor Rob mentioned how Israel did not have a king, and they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul. And it probably didn't take too long after giving them Saul that they realized maybe they had made a mistake in asking for a king. And yet it's a mistake quite often many of us make, uh, because we often make mistakes when we compare ourselves to other people. We compare ourselves to other people, and we think we need what they have. It quite often leads to us making mistakes and making poor choices. And so Israel asked for a king. God gave them one, and maybe they regretted it. And Saul becomes king. After becoming king, uh, God decides, you know, because of his poor choices, Saul just isn't going to make it. I need somebody else. To be, to be king over Israel. And so last week we looked at how God sent Samuel out to look for the person that was going to replace Saul. Samuel gets to the house of Jesse, and Jesse parades all his sons in front of Samuel, and especially the first one comes in, Eliab, and, and he's like, oh yeah, this has got to be him, and he's like, God's like, nope. Okay, so he goes through all of them, all seven of them, and then he's like, do you got any others? And that's when they bring in David, the youngest son. And even though maybe that might not have been the person Samuel would have chosen if he was making the choice, God is like, yep, that's my man. So that's what we talked about last week. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 17, Saul is still king, but Israel is having some problems with the Philistines, their neighbors. Okay, any of you ever have any problems with your neighbors? I know mine are really difficult sometimes, Okay. Okay, if you don't know, that's funny, only because Pastor Josh Phillips and his family are my neighbors, so um, <clears throat> very difficult. Uh, but anyway, the Philistines and Israelites, they are getting ready to go at it. 
And so in 1 Samuel chapter 17 and verse 4, it says, A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. All right, what do we know? The Philistines, they have this champion. His name is Goliath and he is one big man. Okay, other versions of, of this passage talk about him being a certain amount of cubits. And there's some variance in, you know, how, how, how big was a cubit? How long was a cubit? I, I read several different things this week. I read some people that said that, that Goliath was probably only about 6'9". Uh, but most of the things that I read said that Goliath was, was probably over 9 feet tall. He's like the Shaquille O'Neal of the Philistines, okay? He was one big man. He's tall. And obviously, he must be very strong because it talks about his armor being or weighing 5,000 shekels. If you're not very good on your shekel conversion, okay, that weighs about 125 pounds. Okay, imagine 125 pounds around his torso. And it says he has a spear whose iron point weighed between 15 and 20 pounds. That's the point of his spear, 15 to 20 pounds for perspective. Some of you know my youngest son. My youngest son, Tim, happens to throw the javelin for his track and field team in college. His javelin weighs 1.8 pounds. Okay, 1.8 pounds. And on a good day, he's able to throw it about 180 feet, and that might be being generous because I'm his father. Okay? <clears throat> but I thought to myself this week, if I put a javelin in Tim's hand that had a point on it that weighed 15 to 20 pounds, I don't think he could throw it 18 feet. Now, surely if he was here today, he would say, of course he could, but he, but he can't. He's not here. When I, when I thought about all these things that were on Goliath's body, weighed up, I thought, you know, we don't know how big David was. Like, everybody always assumes that David was some little runt. We don't really know. But there is a chance that when you added all this armor that Goliath had on top of him, that that armor probably weighed more than Goliath did. Okay, so Goliath was one big man. And so I want you guys, in your minds, to really be able to picture this. Imagine the size of this champion from Gath, who was standing before the Israelite army. You can kind of see why when you look at this story, you would look at Goliath and go, yes, <clears throat> he is the favorite in any kind of battle that's going to happen today. And what we're going to do now, and this is a little bit dangerous, I'm going to read the rest of the story to you guys, and I'm going to try my best not to interrupt the story, okay? Because what I want is I really want us to, to picture what is going on in this situation, okay? So kind of imagine over here, we have a hill, and all the Philistines are over there with Goliath. And on this side of the sanctuary, we've got this hill, and over here, we have the Israelites, and they're all sitting there. And in the middle right here, we got this valley. And this is going on. So if you're still there, 1 Samuel chapter 17, starting in verse 8. We'll see if I can get through this without stopping. <clears throat> By the way, don't be falling asleep as I read this passage. Okay? I'll be watching at the end. Okay? All right. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 8. It says, Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? 
Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistine's words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time he was old and well advanced in years. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The first son, Eliab, the second son, Abinadab, and the third son, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, Take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. There was Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock with a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with a keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and greeted his brothers. As he was talking to them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. When the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his father's family from taxes in Israel. What a deal. Sorry. David asked the man, the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what had been said, what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab... David's oldest brother heard him speaking with the men. He burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter, and the men answered him as before. Okay, I can't help it, but just think about this. Just think about this older brother, little brother scenario in the Bible here as it plays out. The older brother kind of disgusted, little brother kind of just minding his own, going on, okay? I'm not going to talk about that anymore, but I just love that. <clears throat> he then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter, and the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight against him. Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a boy, and he has been fighting a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. 
When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I can't go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took a staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with a sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with a shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day... The Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it, and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the scabbard. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Shuram road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem, and he put the Philistines' weapons in his own tent. All right, do me a favor. If anybody's asleep next to you, wake them up, okay? So David and Goliath... When you hear the phrase, David and Goliath, it's kind of a term that's kind of found its way into even just everyday life, okay? When you hear somebody talk about David and Goliath, normally it's a phrase that suggests that there's like the victory is certain for one side, and it's highly, highly unlikely on the other side. That's a battle of David and Goliath. Like, I, 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 used, to watch, I used to like to watch college basketball a lot, and in college basketball, there are those teams that are great Every single year, teams like Duke and North Carolina and Kentucky, like, like they're great every year. They're going to be great next year. The year after that, they'll still be great. They are, they're really good. And then there are other teams that maybe aren't so good. Like, I'm not picking on anybody who went to the school, but like our local college, CSUN, they have a basketball team, okay? And, and I hope the best for them, but let's just face it. At this point, they're no Duke, okay? As a matter of fact, last year, CSUN uh, only went 6-24 and 24 on the basketball court. Okay, kind of a rough year for any matadors out there, all right? So if Duke was to schedule a game with CSUN 
at some point, someone would say something like, this is a battle of David and Goliath, right? Duke would be favored by like 50 points, and they probably would win by those 50 points. The problem with using this phrase, David and Goliath, like that, is personally, I think that is uh, misreading what's really going on in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And so what I'm about to say probably goes against what maybe you've thought most of your life, but, but here's the most, one of the most important things as I look at this story of David and Goliath. David was always the favorite in the battle with Goliath. Okay, David was always the favorite in the battle of Goliath. There was never a chance that David was going to lose. There was never a chance that David was going to lose. He had two things going for him. The first thing was maybe his style of fighting, okay? He wasn't going to fight like everybody else who would go out to fight Goliath. Um, one of my favorite movies of all time is the movie The Princess Bride, okay? Um, if you've seen it, you love it. You know, if you haven't seen it, you should see it. If you have children, it's a great movie for kids, except for there's a couple of words in there that uh, you might want to have some volume control with, okay? And so, you know, if you watch it first, you know, mute, whatever, don't want to get you in any kind of trouble. Um, but it's a great movie. And, and there's, a, there's a giant in the movie that's played by the guy who was a former wrestler, Andre the Giant. And, and he's kind of with the bad guy. And the, the, the hero of the story named Wesley is there. And they're going to fight. And it doesn't seem like a fair fight. Like Andre the Giant's character is picking up these big old boulders and throwing it at him. And, and so it doesn't seem like a fair fight. But eventually Wesley gets on Andre the Giant's back and kind of chokes him out. And, and, and they're, they're having a discussion as he chokes him out. And he's kind of talking about how he's, he's not used to fighting just one man. And that's why he has the problem, and then he passes out. Okay? So Wesley, the hero of the story, wins the battle. Well, you know what? As, as Goliath is standing there, he's dressed, and he's ready for someone to come out with hand-to-hand combat. He's ready for battle. He is ready for Israel's biggest and strongest dude to come out <clears throat> so they can tussle. Okay? He's ready to come out so they can just brawl. And, and, you know, if David had run out there foolishly and ran right at Goliath and tried to tackle him, the story would have ended very differently, okay? The story would have ended very differently if that is what David would have tried to do. But David had an advantage. David knew how to hurl a sling. Okay, now I, I actually purchased a sling on Amazon, okay? And uh, much to my dismay... I tried talking several people into being um, demonstrators for me because, you know, I've had this thing like nine days. So at this point, I'm like an expert, you know. Um, But I couldn't really find anybody that would stand up here and hold a watermelon over their head for me to sling something at it. So I'm sorry I don't have that demonstration for you today. But trust me when I say this. Like, we think of little David, we think of the, you know, when we teach our children, we think of a little story, we think of a little guy with a little slingshot, and, and it's not of much use. But the reality is a sling was a pretty serious weapon in ancient times. As a matter of fact, there's a verse in, in Judges chapter 20, and it's easily kind of missed, but it tells us a little bit about the importance of a slinger. In Judges chapter 20, verse 16, it says this. It says, among all these soldiers, there were 700 chosen men who were left-handed, each of whom could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. How many of you knew that verse was in the Bible? Okay, like there are so many verses in the Bible, and I have a weird sense of humor, but kind of make me chuckle, okay? That was one of them. I read that verse, and I'm like, 
that's kind of funny. The idea that there are 700 left-handed men. Now, I'm left-handed, so I kind of appreciate that, okay? Um, but there are 700 left-handed men, and, and so what was going on here is the Israelites and the Benjamites were going out to, to have a little battle with each other, and they were talking about the Benjamites having these 700 left-handed slingers, and it says they could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. So this passage from Judges, even though I find it a little bit funny, I think it tells us a little something about David. David with a sling was not some wimpy little kid's toy and not some small little weapon. It could do some serious damage. So David was clearly, you know, some had an advantage with that. But here's where the biggest advantage comes in. And this is probably the most important thing that I could tell all of us this morning is this. Is you know what? When we are on the same side as God, we're always the favorite. Okay? When we are on the same side as God is on, we are always going to be the favorite. David understood that he wasn't fighting this battle alone. He understood that he wasn't fighting this battle for himself. And in verse 26, it talks not about how Goliath was dishonoring the armies of Saul. Verse 26, David says that Goliath was dishonoring the armies of who? Of God. Okay, in verse 36 and 37, it says, Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And then again, David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the army of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. You see, David wasn't trusting in his own ability. He was trusting in God's ability to do something. Now, and I think we ought to be very careful, though, okay, because we have to make sure in our lives that we are on the same side as God, not that we're trying to convince ourselves that God is on our side. Does that make sense? Like, quite often as people... Maybe we have our special pet peeve or our special thing. We try to figure out a way to where God is on our side. That's not quite how it works, okay? We have to make sure that we are on the same side as God. That's why David was the favorite. He was always the favorite. The battle was never in doubt. In David's mind, this battle was never in doubt. I bet for every other single person on both sides of that hill, the battle was lost already, or one, okay, but I, get, I guarantee you there was never any doubt in David's mind. Why? Because he knew that God was on his side. You know, the Bible is filled with stories of people that overcame Goliath because they were trusting in God. I think of the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings chapter 18. That's why he was able to be so confident in the face of the prophets of Baal. Um, I think of all the stories in Daniel. There's so many stories in Daniel where people are faithful, especially Daniel, saying, hey, listen, I don't care that you tell me I can't pray. I'm going to pray. Why? Because he knew that that was the right thing. He knew that God was on his side. In the New Testament, when you see the apostles preaching the gospel message, telling people about the resurrection of Jesus, even after they're being threatened, even after they're being beaten, why are they able to do that? Because they knew that God was on their side. When we're trusting in him, regardless of our physical size or our worldly abilities, God is capable of using us. We become God's giants, capable of doing great things. 
A famous old preacher and missionary, Hudson Taylor, said this, says, all God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on his being with them. I am the very little servant of an illustrious master. David was doing what he was doing not for his glory, but he was doing it for God's glory. And because of that, he knew that God was going to take care. So the reality is, you and I probably are not going to walk out of the building today and face some nine-foot giant, right? At least I, I hope not, okay? Um, but, but we all, in our own way, face different Goliaths in our lives, don't we? We all face situations that when we're faced with them, they, we think that they're beyond our ability, like there is no chance we can do this. And for some of us, it's a, it's a one-time event. Like for David, man, it was a one-day thing. One-day thing, he faces Goliath. Boom, it's over. But for others of us, as we face the Goliaths in our life, it's something that we face over and over again. Like the Israelite army, who had to sit there for 40 days, listening to Goliath come down and to say rude things and to defy God. They had to do it day after day. So our Goliaths are all very different. But the reality is we all have them. We all face them. And we all will face them. And right when we get done battling one, there's more that will come along. That's life. So the question is, how do you and I, how do we handle the Goliaths in our life? And, and I'm, a, I'm a very simple person, so I, I try to break this down into something very simple for us to remember. So there's four, four things I want to encourage you all with. And as we go through each of these, there's going to be several scripture references that I read through. Unless you're like a master at finding your Bible, just write them down, and you could read them later, okay? If you're quick with your Bible, go for it, okay? But, but why, or what should we do, and how can we handle the Goliaths in our lives? Number one, we need to trust God. We need to trust God. And why can we trust God? Because the Bible is filled with stories of God being trustworthy. Like, it's not a blind thing that we're, I'm telling you to do. It's something that we see over and over again, where God continually is trustworthy with the people that are on his side. The history of the church is filled with people who trusted God. And the truth is, God, you know, God delivered David in this situation. But God has not promised to always deliver us like he did, to, like he did David in that situation. Paul in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21 says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He was willing to trust God no matter what was going to happen. And also, like we're fools. Like I, I want you, I want to encourage us to trust God, but I don't want to encourage us to be dumb. Okay, like, like it wouldn't make sense to walk down an alley in a dangerous neighborhood and just say, well, I'm trusting God. He's going to watch over me. Okay, and then when you get mugged, the officer's going to be like, what are you doing walking down this alley, you dummy? Okay, like we, we shouldn't be checking our brains into the door, but you know, we need to trust God. And, and the Bible's filled with promises that cover all kinds of principles for all kinds of situations that you and I face. James chapter 1, verses 2 and four, two through 4, says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. God is calling us to find joy in the midst of our battles. God is calling us to find joy in the midst of our Goliaths. Why? Because God is doing something. God is working on us. Romans chapter 8, verses 37 and 39 says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors 
through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. As we're facing the Goliaths in our lives and we're, and we're, we're working on trusting God, we need to be reminded of these passages and say, listen, there isn't anything that can separate us from the love of God. They could take everything else that we have, but nothing and no situation can take us away from the love of God. God wants us to trust him as we face our, face our Goliaths. The, the second thing that I want to do, so I want us to trust God, but I also want to encourage us to, to come up with a plan to come up with a plan as we face our Goliaths. Now, there's a, there's a popular phrase out there that says a failure to plan is a plan to fail. Um, and and a, as we face our Goliaths, all our Goliaths are different. We need to come up with a plan of how we're going to deal with it, how we're going to handle those things. Trusting in God doesn't relieve us from coming up with a plan. There's an old phrase about prayer that says, you and I, we need to pray as if everything depends on God and then work as if everything depends on us. Does that make sense? We need to pray like everything depends on God and then work like everything depends on us. And I think that's true in this situation as well. You know, quite often in the Old Testament, there are situations where the Israelite or the, Jew, uh, the kings of Judah would go out for battle, and it's said that they, they either did or did not inquire of the Lord. What's that saying? Well, either they sought God's guidance or they didn't. And so we're trying to formulate the plans in our lives for how we battle our Goliaths. We need to be praying to God for his wisdom. Praying to God, saying, Lord, how, how do I handle this situation? What do you want me to do? What, what is the plan? We need to remember verses like Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. This says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. We need to remember James chapter 1, verse 5 where it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. We need to trust God, but we also need to formulate a plan. We need to come up with a plan. What are we going to do? How are we going to do this? Third thing we need to do is we need to find accountability. We need to find accountability. You know, we all need accountability in our lives, don't we? Don't we need someone that can hold us accountable? Uh, the way I put it is we all need someone who's either going to come behind us and pat us on the back or come behind us and kick us in the pants, okay? Each of us, we need those people. We need those people that are going to encourage us and build us. We need those people that can just be brutally honest with us and say, man, get moving. You need to do something. Who is that for you? In your life, do you have someone who holds you accountable? Do you have someone who's there to encourage you or to kick you in the pants? Like I said, we all need that. Proverbs 27, verse 17 says, Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Proverbs 15, 22 says, Without counsel, plans will fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. We need to trust God. We need to come up with a plan, a formulated plan, and then we need to find accountability. I would encourage you guys this morning to find those people in your life that could hold you accountable, and then let them. Okay? And then let them. My wife and I, we're very different people, okay, very different. As you guys know her, she's very sweet, and I'm not, okay? It's okay. Uh, we're very different, and, and she has lots of people in her life that, that she would allow to hold her accountable. I'm not like that. I have one or two people in my life 
that I allow to do that. Okay, now there, I can think of two people right now in my head. They are both allowed to come alongside me and, and, and pick me up, and they are both allowed to come alongside me and kick me when I need it. Okay? Find that accountability in your life. If we have any chance of overcoming those Goliaths, we need to find that accountability. That's one of the great things that I think about getting involved in a small group. If you're involved in a small group, those are people that you, you build relationships with, and you're able to get to know them, and then they're able to encourage you. Hopefully, they're more encouraging. Hopefully, they'll encourage you when you need it. Those are the people that are going to notice when you're not around. Those are going to be the people that notice when something is going awry in your life. And so I would encourage you, I don't care if it's Sunday morning, Wednesday night, whatever, whenever it is and wherever it is, to be involved in a small group and find a place where people can hold you accountable. We need to trust God. We need to formulate a plan, and, then, and we need accountability. And then lastly, and this is maybe the most difficult one, is the reality is we need to commit to the discipline. We need to commit to the discipline. Let me explain what I mean by that. None of the Goliaths that you and I face in our lives are going to be easy to overcome. None of those situations are going to be easy to get past. It's going to take dedication and discipline in our lives. And the truth is, many of us are facing Goliaths because we've lacked that discipline. Like that Goliath that's in our life is a direct result of a lack of discipline on our part. Not all of them, not, all, not every time, but quite often those big things that we're facing, you can trace back to our poor choices and our lack of discipline. And yet, you know, the Bible says a lot about discipline and self-control. Hebrews 12:11 says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. Proverbs 25, verse 8 says, Like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. And then James 1, 12 says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, having stood the test. That person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. This idea of discipline, it isn't pleasant, but it's so important. Because without that discipline, we're, we're, we cannot overcome the Goliaths that you are facing. I don't I don't know what Goliaths you all are facing. But I do know this. I know that God wants us to trust him. God wants us to trust him. And he, and he is willing to do his part, but he wants us to do our part. He wants us to come up with that plan by inquiring of him. He wants us to find that accountability. He wants us to be disciplined. I can't promise us all it's all going to turn out like it did for David. But I do know, to, know this, that God is going to be right there with us. One last verse that I wanted to read to you guys. <clears throat> and I think this speaks to the heart of our Heavenly Father. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter, 20, or chapter 11, verse 28. It says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you're here this morning, and you're facing that Goliath in your life, Jesus is saying, hey, come to me. Come to me and let me help you out with that. Don't, don't try to do it on your own. Come to me. I'm right here for you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much just for your word. I thank you for the hope that we have in you. I thank you for the story of David and so many others in your word 
that you are faithful to. I pray for, for each of us, Lord, as we face the Goliaths in our lives, that we would first look to you and know that through you and by your power, we can overcome anything. Thank you, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Remember, Lord, your tender mercies and your love. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at WVCCH. If you'd like more information about our church or services, please visit our website, WVCCH.org. Thank you for listening. Rebellions that you've always